And now, live from beautiful Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, you're watching My Fellow Americans with your host, Spike Collins. Hi, everyone. Okay, I think now you can hear me. Yep, nope, now they can't, yeah, they couldn't hear me before. Okay, well, anyway, thank you all for coming to the show. And the first guest, or the first sponsor, it didn't really matter what I said before, the first sponsor is the Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, the fastest growing uh, caucus in the party, and the second largest in the caucus, uh, in the party. If you want to join, uh, join the Facebook group Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus, if you want to become a voting member, which means nothing, we don't vote on anything, uh, then go to uh, moneywatersmedia.com slash store and uh, buy some Libertarian Party Waffle House Caucus swag. The Gravy King. Cumberland Cannabis Co. If you would uh, like to buy some viable, ethical, and effective Delta 8 and CBD products from Cumberland County, Tennessee, well, what a moment of serendipity for both of us. Because if you go to cumberlandcannabisco.com, you can do exactly that. Cumberlandcannabisco.com. Joe Soloski is running for Pennsylvania governor. Joe Soloski is the key to Pennsylvania's success. And if you'd like to help Joe become the first libertarian governor ever, then just go to joesoloski.com. That's J-O-E-S-O-L-O-S-K-I.com. Mudwater, the most appropriately named sponsor that we will probably ever have on this show because it's literally Mudwater and we're called Muddy Waters Media. Mudwater, uh, if you woke up today and said, my God, if, if I never have a cup of coffee again, it'll be too soon. Well, what great news we have because this is not coffee. It's got masala chai, cacao, mushrooms, turmeric, sea salt, cinnamon, and literally nothing else. And if you're thinking, that doesn't sound like that would taste good at all. Well, it it doesn't. It tastes, it's not good. It's not terrible, but it's certainly not good. But it, frankly, coffee doesn't taste that great either. You get used to it. Uh, and if you do uh, put enough honey on anything, it will taste like honey. So you can do that. That's what I do. I have this every single day, and it gives me it gives me one-seventh of the caffeine of a cup of coffee, just enough to have me like this all day, but not so much caffeine that it leaves you like this at the end of the day. So if you want to get some mud water, uh, go to muddiedwatersmedia.com slash mud, and you're definitely going to want to you're going to want to get some honey too. Jack Casey has finally written his third book. After stringing us along for the better part of a year, he's finally written his third book. What is it about? I have no idea, nor do I know what the first three books, were, first two books were about. But if you get the royal green in Silver Throned and crowned by gold, then you can find out something that I never will find out. Because as I've said many times, if this is not, if these books are not good, then I'm going to feel bad about trying to get you to buy them. And if they are good, then I'm going to feel bad about making fun of them every week. So find out for yourself. Are these books good or is Jack Casey just stringing us all along uh, for a big ride? Maybe there's nothing even in this book. These might be empty pages. I don't know. You can find out by, for yourself by going to theroyalgreen.com. Adderpan, the most horrifying thing to ever be made by someone who knows how to make software. Adderpan is a, it's a horror game on Steam available for only $5. It is the most frightening thing I've ever witnessed in my life. 
I haven't played the game. I only watched a, a, a walkthrough gameplay video, and that was enough for me to not be able to sleep that night. So if you'd like to live in terror and fear and misery for the rest of your life, then go to Steam. And for the low price of $5, plus the ongoing mental health care that you and the rest of your family will need for the rest of your lives, really, uh, you can experience... I don't know why they made this game. I don't I don't know, but they do pay us to tell you about it, so here we are. So go Adderpan, available on Steam, 5 bucks. I don't, if you're, this is your thing, then there you go. Fierce Luxury by Ashley. It's not horrifying. It's actually totally different. It is a high-end bag and accessory, um, what's the word? Oh, uh, uh, consignment shop. I completely lost the name of that, what that is. Uh, they carry the uh, top-of-the-line products like Louis Vuitton, Coach, and Hermes. Hermes. Uh, if you go to fierceluxurybyashley.com, you can check out the products that she has, or you can consign your own high-end bags and accessories. Don't bring her garbage. Bring her nice stuff. And uh, she will consign it for 30%, which is 20% less than all those other schmucks out there. So fierceluxurybyashley.com or the exclusive Facebook group, Fierce Luxury by Ashley. And speaking of fierce and luxurious, Thomas Queter is running to be the next state senator for the 52nd District of New York. Thomas Queter says, I run better than Albany, which he finds funny because he's in a wheelchair. So I don't, it's, that he finds that funny. Uh, but it, it, Thomas Queter is one of the best people I know, uh, a man of the highest character, a man who cares so much for uh, the people in his life and the people in his district. Uh, there is no one else, uh, and I mean this sincerely, no one else who is better suited uh, for that role. And if you'd like to help Thomas become the first libertarian state senator in New York history, go to tomfor52.com, T-O-M-F-O-R 52.com. The uh, intro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That's J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on Facebook. Go to his SoundCloud. Go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com and get, buy his entire discography. He just had a new album that dropped. Uh, I think it's like 25 bucks to buy everything he's ever made. Go buy it. You're going to love it. You're going to love everything he's done. He's fantastic. I'd like to thank Nestle Pure Life. For this water, they're not a sponsor. Wouldn't that be cool if Nestle was a sponsor? I just, this is the water I'm drinking tonight. Bulubanaka. I wish they were sponsors. Good water. Shout out to Tamron Turks and Mom and them as always. Folks, my guest tonight, we're getting some high pedigree guests tonight. Well, we've been getting high pedigree guests, but we're getting an especially high pedigree guest tonight. Uh, he is the chief executive officer of Students for Liberty, which is a, uh, as many of you, we've talked a lot about SFL on this, uh, but they are a nonprofit organization that trains and supports pro-liberty students in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, my guest tonight holds a PhD in political economy from King's College in London. He's here today to talk with us about where we can find liberty solutions in our increasingly polarized tyrannical hellscape that we live in uh ladies and gentlemen my fellow americans please welcome to the show dr wolf von lar wolf thanks so much for coming on thanks so much for having me spike how the hell are you i'm doing fantastic man i'm really excited to have you on uh i, I do have to ask you so you know you have you know this political science degree and i i asked this of many of my guests who are, who are of, of the highest pedigree you know political science degree you are you know, the head of uh, the, I believe, the top uh, libertarian um, uh, college organization worldwide. And here you are being interviewed by a Jew in his guest room. Are, is this, do you feel like you've peaked in this moment? Is this, is this the top of the, 
that that is absolutely the top. I could not imagine anything better than this right now, and and and, and I love it. Well, we're gonna we're gonna milk it then. I want you to live <laughs> in this glory of the, the top of the moment. Well, folks, uh, thank you for tuning in, and uh, be sure to ask. Uh, myself and Wolf, any of your questions and thoughts, and we will tell you if you are right or wrong. Now, uh, Wolf, before we get started, I just want to ask you, whenever I have a a libertarian on my show uh, for the first time, I always ask, what is it that brought you to libertarianism and the liberty movement? Was it like an aha moment, gradual evolution over time? Every libertarian has their genesis story. Tell us the, the Dr. Wolf von Lahr story. Uh, first of all, kudos for um, pronouncing my name correctly. And, and for, <laughs> also, it's it's pretty cool to realize that now, after like, what, 70 years after World War II is ending, now a German and a Jew sitting here over the internet talking yes. about like how we can spread the ideas of liberty far and wide. And that's yes. just like a thing of beauty, which should all give us hope for the future of humankind, even though if you look at the news, um, it's all very depressing. Um, so be optimistic in the medium to long run. You can be skeptical in the short run, uh, but don't lose your, your optimism. Uh, but Absolutely. to answer your question, um, the short answer would be Google. Uh, the longer answer would be the financial crisis of 2008, the Great Recession. When that happened, I believe the narrative in the United States was similar than the narrative in Germany, where I'm from and where I was still studying during that time. And it was like, oh, it's the fault of the bankers and it's, it's capitalism's fault. And it, it was not really a, a very convincing narrative that was spun. And so I was starting to Google and lo and behold, I found more out about the Austrian business cycle theory and Mises and Hayek and thinkers like that. And I started to question like money. And uh, then I asked questions like, okay, how can I actually know things? And I started to study epistemology and what's a good life and then philosophy. And I was down in this rabbit hole, which uh, quickly made me realize I'm a, I'm a libertarian. And then I quickly uh, learned about like other people out there and other organizations the Mises Institute, the Institute for Main Studies, the Mercator Center. And uh, then I was even like that crazy that I pursued a master's in Austrian economics. I do have a master's in Austrian economics. There's only a few places where you can get it in Spain in a language that I don't speak. But I'm only wow. half insane, Spike. I'm only half insane because uh, I knew that I was able to give my presentations and my papers in, in English. Um, but that was definitely okay. good. Um, and then I pursued my, my PhD at King's College London in political economy. Uh, more mainstream, more public choicey stuff, um, less Austrian. And all the time I was working at Students for Liberty and Volunteering, which has changed my life. And that now propelled me in a nutshell why I'm sitting here in front of you to be um, interviewed clearly by the best podcast and interviewer the world has ever seen. <laughs> in this very moment, I've also peaked. We're both peaking at the same time. This is like a this is like a mutual thing that's happening. Yeah, here. it's, it's um, becoming a little bit homoerotic at this point, but we can continue. No, no, listen, hey, <laughs> you just listen, you just roll with it and, and see where it goes. No, I'm uh, I, I'm I'm excited to have you. And it, it's so you actually you have a, a degree. What would you mind me asking? What's the name of the university? You got a degree in Austrian economics in a Spanish university? What's that? What's yeah, it's that Re, Re Juan Carlos, the King Carlos University in Madrid, Spain. So it's being taught by uh, Jesus Huerta de Soto, um, who is one of the predominant uh, Latin American, Spanish-speaking Austrian scholars. He has written like fantastic thick books. He's hardcore. He's also a millionaire because he's on his insurance company. So he goes sometimes into classes, and I've seen this um, on the undergrade level. He goes there and says like, fiat money is nothing. He takes a 50 euro note, rips it apart and throws it in the audience of all the undergraduate students. And that makes an impression on, on those minds. Yeah. And uh, each time when we had um, a class with him, like a small seminar, because it was always like, I don't know, 30 people, 20 people, he brought like a statue, a bust of Mises to the room and put it down there before we started. 
Wow. That's, I, I mean, I, I knew that there were definitely uh, uh, professors out there that are teaching the Austrian school of thought. I didn't realize there was an actual, like a course that there are courses that were available on it. That's very, very interesting. So yeah, you can get your and, PhD there as well. And um, yeah, I can recommend it. And a lot of Americans went there without speaking Spanish. I mean, this helps, um, but it's, it's really a very invigorating environment because everybody's there because they want to be there. So you don't sit there like with 200 other people that just want to like get a degree so that they can start working at McDonald's. No, there's people I want to talk about epistemology like late at night, you know, right, and not just right. like so social sciences just for, I don't know, trying to get a degree then, which is often not worth much. Right. They're not depending they're on what you get doing it in. their time. They're not there just doing their time. They're actually there because they want to be there. That's interesting. Right. So and we're going to talk more about Students for Liberty and the work that you're doing there. But I, I can't help but but get your thoughts as you are, you know, one of the top thinkers, certainly in the, the Austrian economics world. Um, the big news, obviously, of, of the past few days, certainly in the U.S. and, and, and maybe even uh, around the world, just the impact, the potential impact Um certainly in the U.S., is the, the vaccine mandate that we heard from Joe Biden, that uh, because, obviously, of the need to get everyone vaccinated except for postal workers and members of Congress and members of the judiciary who are exempted um, and not exempting people who already got the COVID va- or already got uh, natural immunity from having COVID, for, we, everyone's got to get this vaccine. They're now mandating the vaccine. Um, this is clearly a threat to individual liberty my question to you is are we seeing this you know we've seen bits and pieces of what's coming out of australia we're seeing bits and pieces of what's coming out of canada you know we've seen stuff like that are we is this what's happening everywhere this kind of stuff or are we an outlier or are we an outlier in that we're behind everyone else like you know sfl is based across the the planet what are you here is this like what the normal is right now in the in the certainly in the developed world it's hard to tell what's normal anymore um and we are yeah you're right we're in 114 countries and every country has like a slightly uh different approach to it uh some are fairly laissez-faire some are totally crazy and like if you would have asked anyone before this whole went, thing went down like what country do you, would you expect to be the worst you would probably not have really said like canada and australia i mean not talking about china because like right now in china they already have like Two billion people are vaccinated and they have like a QR system, right? That you have to go somewhere and you have to show. And then you have like a green light. That means you can travel anywhere. If you're yellow, it, it means that you have to be like quarantined. And of course, they're like red people that cannot travel anywhere. So they're merging like their like big brother approach with their citizen score, which is super scary because they're gathering all of this data if you're like a good citizen or not. So and combining that right. with this as well. So this is like one of the most atrocious systems that we don't hear the media talking a whole lot about. But um, it is it is definitely a step in the wrong direction. And I think Biden uh, did something horribly wrong with this because like what you can agree that like uh, many people say like, OK, the vaccine is good. I'm vaccinated and I had COVID last week. So I got COVID despite being vaccinated. And I'm still like my voice sounds a little bit rough because of that. Um, and it's it's just plain stupid to ignore the people that already have like natural immunity, which we know or at least early signs indicating that that is better immunity than just from the vaccines. And it's it's just outrageous that they're ignoring those things. I mean, uh, Dr. Fauci was just asked about this like one or two weeks ago. And he said, like, hmm, I haven't thought about that. Or like, <laughs> I, I have not an answer to that. And that's just outrageous. It's like the chief scientist who focused on this. So I think 
you want to protect people, right? And, and it's an open question how you do that. And vaccine is probably like a good step in the, in the right direction. At least I believe so. I know many yep. people can agree, disagree with that and that's totally mm-hmm. fine. And I would never use my vote or the government in order to enforce my preferences. But like, right. he is just overstepping so much and he's like disagreeing with himself. Like Joe Biden needs to listen to President-elect Biden because President-elect Biden has said in December that this is not going to happen. His press secretary in July said, this is not what we're going to do. And then two months later, we announced September, oh, like we're going to do this and force 100 million people out to do this. And we don't even know how we're going to do it because it's going to be like very difficult to enforce. It's a huge privacy issue. Like, is your doctor now, like, do they have to hand over your vaccination uh, information? And then you give it like to, to like a massive database and that thing is going to leak at the end of the day because that's what government databases and most databases centralized ones do. They leak. And so that's also like a huge threat. And if your goal is to make people who are already very critical of government, which most people who are anti-vax are because they feel they have been lied to uh, because right. the, there's been so much confusing data out there. And then you tell them like, hey, this is so good. We have to force you to do this, even though it's <laughs> it's not going to protect you because you will still get it but it will be helpful to you then people will be more and more skeptical and if you push it down their throat especially americans who are freedom-loving people for the most part it's it's the wrong way of going about it so um i think this is a step in the wrong direction will we see protests as we see in france as we see in australia as we see also in the netherlands because they were like some other restrictions they wanted to enforce potentially um but it definitely will not help healing the societal fabric here in the United States, particularly because we have been going so far away from one another and polarization is an all-time high. And this is not happening since yesterday. It's it's a trend for over 50, 60 years. But this is sort of behavior and pushing your politics down your throat um, about complicated questions of science, I, I think it's completely misguided. Well, the interesting thing, it's like you said, uh, and I watched that that video where I think it was Sanjay Gupta said, you know, there's at least one study that's suggesting that natural immunity from COVID will make you give you more protection than the than being fully vaccinated with both shots of the the Pfizer vaccine. Um, what do you have to say to people who are already who have already gotten it and are have recovered and who are saying, I don't want to take it and I'm more protected? Why should I have to do that to go to work? And he said, I don't have a firm answer for you on that. OK, yeah. great. You don't have a firm answer. But yet the federal government is telling us, you know, anyone that works for any of these companies has to take it. It's one or the other. It's either you fully know that this is something that needs to be done or or if you don't. And I've said this a few times because I agree with you. I think that for I personally have chosen not to get vaccinated because I have an autoimmune disease, which acts weird. I can drink milk or eat eggs and my immune system acts funny. I don't want to use, you know, have an mRNA vaccine where we don't really know the long term effects. But I think for the vast majority of people, it is safe. It is effective. Uh, It's not effective. It doesn't appear to be effective in keeping you from getting it as you just saw from from getting it after being vaccinated it wasn't fun but, and it wasn't it wasn't mild either oh and it wasn't mild either i mean i didn't i didn't go in hospital like i'm fine but like i was right. knocked out for a good part of a week you know i didn't expect it i thought it would be like three days and i would be fine and the first three days felt like that but then pfft, uh, it went down and interesting like there's so many things that we don't know about it like my wife is right. also vaccinated and she was hanging out with me the whole time she got tested four times she didn't get it um so, so there's so many different know. questions. So I think it's completely legitimate to say like, hey, I have a medical history. I don't know. I don't want to introduce this right. to my system. 
Yeah. I think that's fine and that shouldn't be enforced. And yeah, exactly with the natural immunity, it doesn't make it makes no sense. And you have all kinds of unintended consequences as well. For instance, in France right now, you have the situation because they're forcing uh, healthcare workers to be vaccinated. And if you're not vaccinated, they will not like they will not uh, employ you. So there's a lot of people that are now part of the healthcare system now, like, or that those resources are all directed at COVID and like people who need like cancer treatments and all kinds of other treatments, yep. they are not getting it either. And we also seen this in the United States too. So people are actually dying by the government trying to fit like uh, come up with a one size fits all solution and forcing yep. people into their in their way uh, of of yeah, complying with it to the world. I think if the if the government right now said what was the truth, if if the federal government said, hey, listen. All of the data we have shows that if you are vaccinated, you are much less likely to end up hospitalized or sick. A few moments later, especially in a case like this, I don't know if they even want people to get vaccinated as much as they just want to create reaction and division and and use it as an excuse to impose themselves. What do you think of that? Do you think there's a possibility that that they actually don't care about vaccination levels and it's more about just using this to impose themselves? That's an interesting question. Um, Let me try to come in from two different angles. So my PhD was about studying legislative responses during crises. Um, That's what I've studied in my PhD, specifically after financial crises. And what I found out is that laws get enacted much quicker after crises. Mm. Of course, that's like no-brainer. Something has to get done. Not from our perspective, but you know, from the general um, population's perspective, from politician perspective, from media perspective, etc. But then laws also get much, much larger, 10 times an av- average. So you get laws that enacted quicker with less deliberation and much bigger pieces of legislation with many more restrictions. And that's not that's not a good way of governing. So on the one hand, yes, I mean, they want to enact stuff and they see a crisis as an opportunity to enact stuff that they wanted to have enacted for a long time. It's just like, clear public choice but on the other hand i don't think necessarily that the politicians who are creating this are saying like oh i just do this because i want to have more power over the electorate i think this is just like a byproduct but i don't think that's like the intention from them going in i think it's maybe just the incentive framework that they find themselves in and they think this is probably like the best uh for people but i do believe that's more mostly driven by fear and by them getting hundreds of thousands of calls from the constituencies of people that live in their basement and are completely fearful and they want to see something done or they got sick or they lost like a loved one. And if right. you get like thousands of these calls, which doesn't mean much in, in a republic where we have 320 million people, right? Right. But that sort of pressure translates into fear responses. And unfortunately, us human beings, like if we've experienced a lot of fear, we react from a place of the, the amygdala is going to rule us, which is our fear, flight and fight and freeze response. And uh, that is not a good recipe for producing policy, unfortunately. Policy, though, gets mostly enacted uh, during crisis, um, and a lot of it. And I think we have we have seen this with the the actions of the Federal Reserve, which has been unprecedented, which I find very very problematic. Um, we have seen this with like all of the unemployment benefits of like the regulations in the housing market, so that people cannot even like charge rent anymore, cannot kick people out anymore. Property right. rights are undermined. And everything they they say they want to help people, but it, it it doesn't do that at the end of the day. And it's as we know, like policies have unintended consequences. So I I guess I slightly disagree with you. Um, I think that the framework produces the outcomes that you and I both find problematic, but I don't right. think it is necessarily all that much conscious, if that makes sense. So it's more just a combination of ineptitude, 
and fear and some corruption as opposed to we're going to do this because we know this is going to happen. Even though a, a brief step back and looking at history of like, this is what happens every time we do something like this. This is sort of that example of, of history repeating itself because people are doomed to repeat it by not seeing how this is going to play out and applying some common sense because it's fear-based. And, and and there's like, particularly Biden remembers when probably like smallpox was regulated. And at that point, like everybody wanted that thing and like they gave it out everywhere. They put like the, the vaccine on a piece of sugar and you had to swallow it. That's his right. generation. Like you and I, we have not experienced that. And everybody was craving that once it came out. And there was like the same kind like everybody wanted to have it and there was like no debate about it. And now they're seeing like these anti-vaxxers and they don't understand it. And they just think everyone there is like stupid or misinformed, whereby other studies actually shown that some of the anti-vaxxers have actually read more science and don't believe just in the authorities. Again, like I'm not saying that they're right. I'm just right, saying right, like right. there's research showing that they have actually did more, that they have done more research themselves than just like listening to somebody on CNN or Fox News, right. um, which is interesting to find it's 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 a different it's a different time and this disease is super weird and we still don't understand it very well right. um and there's also but that, the fact, that exactly this sorry go ahead well just i was just gonna say and the smallpox vaccine was very very effective in getting people actually immune to it whereas this vaccine keeps people from getting sick and might provide some immunity effect of keeping people from getting it although that's not even clear which is fine that means it's effective but it's a completely different argument. If it's not, I'm taking this to keep myself or others from getting it, it's I'm taking this so I'm less likely to get sick. Not only is it a personal choice now, but a lot of people are going to say, no, I don't want to take it then. If, if I'm still possibly going to get it and still possibly get sick, I'll just take my chances with it. And I'm, you know, I'm younger or I'm healthy or whatever, and I, and I don't want to do it. It's, it. it's going to lead to more people having that no thanks reaction to it. Yeah, and especially when the government first said like, hey, this is a vaccine. A vaccine is defined as something that will completely protect you from it. Now yes. we're changing the definition of a vaccine, which right. means, oh, it just like it helps you not getting it uh, and you will not be in like a hospital and probably die. And right. that's fantastic. But like if you are pitching it in the wrong way and then you're becoming less trustworthy, that has consequences. Exactly. And the, the incentive of government is, of course, not to say like, hey, we don't know what we're doing or like, I'm sorry about that. They cannot do that. They have to say like, hey, we are in charge. You have elected us. And we know the best solutions for it. Because if right. they would admit that they don't have the best solutions or always have the best ideas, then why are they in charge? Yep. So they, they cannot really go against this illusion that, that government can solve everything. And that's the reason why you and I are libertarians, classical liberals, because we understand that complex phenomena like society, like markets, like diseases, um, like everything that we are encountering, like human beings living together, requires bottom-up approaches it requires trial and error and it requires different people doing experiments and then seeing like what works and what doesn't instead of like having one massive technocracy technocracy um, implement like one solution and then like suddenly 320 million people or in this case 100 million people are potentially in, in different ways screwed. Um, yeah. But that's unfortunately not the incentive systems that we're living in, is it? No, we, we live in a democratized, centrally planned system that has a perverse incentive often to either allow problems to get worse or just do nothing to stop them because it, it the, the interesting thing about central planning and i know we're both kind of preaching each other on the choir but it's it's important to note that in a centrally planned system that has no accountability um, where people can't opt out 
and where they have to be they have to pay for whatever the people in charge decide there's actually a perverse incentive for things to get worse because if things get better then that's actually an argument that as much help isn't needed as much money isn't needed as much control isn't needed whereas if things are getting worse well then that means we need more money we need more funding we need more power we need more controls you need to do you know listen to us more and do less for yourselves and so it actually incentivizes that where even if as we were talking about they aren't intending it to be that way that's going to be the natural push that happens and that's that's the problem what are our best options in your in your opinion for fighting this like we talked about you know the difficulty of enforcing it and which by the way is why uh congress uh is not going to be requiring uh their uh members or aides to uh to get vaccinated because nancy pelosi said i can't just go and and force them all to give me their medical records that's a violation of their privacy at the hundred the 300 plus million people in the u.s they'll have to do that but how what are our best options for fighting this I mean, excellent point. We have not mentioned it, but like the executive overreach is also unprecedented and that needs to be in any way at, like attacked and uh, we need as many, many lawsuits in order to like undermine this sort of behavior because Biden also doesn't want that himself because like, look, he's setting precedences right now. And like if next time like a Republican is in charge right now, the Democrats don't want the, <laughs> the Republicans to take advantage of like these sorts of right. sweeping powers that they themselves grab these points, these, these, uh, these times um how to solve this um i mean that's that's i first i thought you were trying to say like how do you solve like the problem the bigger problem of government and i i want to 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 pitch bitcoin of course um and we're gonna talk we're we're gonna talk about we get to that but like how how do we solve this right now um i think we people have to go through the judicial judicial in order to like sue biden and hopefully that will curtail this sort of behavior that is, I think, the only way we can fight this right now. I mean, there might be like other ways that you can do like civil disobedience. And some people right. always said, like, I will not force my my uh, employees uh, uh, to to take the jab if they don't want to. And I do understand that. But it depends on the business. If you can do this, if you like a Microsoft um, that you're meeting with President Biden right now, like how much can you really do this right, without losing every single government contract that you have? Um, right, because then right. you will bankrupt tomorrow or. Um, if you don't try to do this and then suddenly you become a crosshair of the IRS or whatever agency is going to enforce this at the end of the day, and then you have to pay $14,000 by every, before every employee that doesn't comply, you will be bankrupt in one day. Like, so it is, it is something that, that some very principled entrepreneurs can, can choose to do. Um, but it will be difficult. I've not talked to, I, I wanted to talk to, to John Mackey about this, but, um, he sees, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Whole Foods. And he's on, on my board, on Students for Liberty's board. Um, I wanted to discuss this more with him, but I haven't yet. But uh, I don't envy the position of the people who have to enforce it at the end of the day. Uh, it seems to right. be impossible. So folks uh, just file like a bunch of lawsuits. And I'm sure that there's already like all kinds of class action lawsuits happening. So I hope there will be a lot of pressure on the, the president and the White House, because this is not the way to go. Then. If they want to enforce something like that, that needs to go to the legislative, and I hope it, it will fail within the legislature um, right. um, through the legislative uh, process. But yeah, besides how we solve that, I, I don't have a good answer. Do you? No. I, so I, I agree that it, there's going to have to be lawsuits involved. There's going to have to be some obstructionism at a at a government level. I think that there's going to be like vax mandate sanctuary state and sanctuary city legislation and things like that i think there's going to be a lot of gumming up of the works there i i do support 
people choosing if they choose to do so. I don't I don't tell people to do anything, but I I do support I do think that there is a place for civil disobedience here for 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 you know what we're calling mass non-compliance. But it's going to almost assuredly have to come from the actual employee level. Because yep. like you said, the employer's doing this the businesses fall apart left and right. Whereas employees may have to say, you know what, I'm going to go work for a company that has fewer than 100 people that isn't requiring vaccination, or I'm going to have to, you know, make this change or make that change that a large, you know, thousand plus or 100 plus employee company isn't really able to make unless they're willing to just fight the IRS, fight the Department of Justice, you know, fight it in court or whatever. It may be in some ways easier, quote unquote, to just have, especially in a, in a, uh, environment of this uh, worker, this labor shortage that we have. If enough people say, no, I'm not going to work for you. Now you're going to have the businesses going back to the Biden administration and saying, we can't find employees like you have to. Something has to change here. So I, I do think that there is a place for the, the, the non-compliance. I think it's most likely going to happen uh, from the, from two standpoints, both from the employee standpoint and from being encouraged by city and county and state governments who pass, uh, uh, you know, non-compliance protection legislation or vaccine mandate um, uh, 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 sanctuary state legislation to say, you know, we aren't going to assist OSHA, we aren't going to assist federal authorities in collecting this information. We're going to block them, you know, left and right. Similar to Second Amendment sanctuary states, similar to immigration sanctuary states, where they just don't cooperate. The federal government relies almost entirely on cooperation with state and local Mm -hmm. law enforcement partners to actually do the work to make sure that it can get enforced. If they don't have that, it becomes, especially if it's in multiple states, uh, it becomes exceedingly difficult for them to do so and I, I i hope to see that kind of in addition to the lawsuits i hope to see that kind of gumming up the works um because it's not just the problem with this with the vaccine i always tell people take whatever the government is saying we're going to do like whatever the reason they're giving al-qaeda you know 9-11 you know we just remember the 20 years ago when you know they said well al-qaeda we need the patriot act to fight al-qaeda uh or you know now the stuff that they're doing with monitoring uh people's phone uh the 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 um, electronic communications that are coming into their phone in order to protect uh from child pornography uh and now they're doing this with you know vaccination for covid and i always tell people whatever their pretext is or their reason for why they say they're doing this just put X there. Just replace whatever that is. So in this case, it would be vaccination for COVID. Put X there. And now say the rest of the thing and say, am I okay with the government saying that I'm not going to be able to work or I'm not going to be able to be able to go to a restaurant or a gym or my children's school or my own school or uh, a major, you know, uh, venue like a theater or a stadium oh. or, you know, the mall or, uh, you know, a, a, the, you know, the store or restaurant or whatever, or be able to work unless I do X or am X. And if your answer is no, that you aren't cool with them having that broad sweeping authority and infrastructure in place to be able to do this, then you shouldn't support them doing this for anything, even if you believe everyone should get vaccinated. So I do hope that that's what happens um, because otherwise this is only going to get worse. Yeah, I mean, that, then you pointed out actually like a positive byproduct of this. It could be that if then states are going to legislate against the federal government and not going to comply, 
that could lead to more competitive governance, meaning more states going against the federal government, which would be a good outcome. However, I'm not sure how likely that is because I know that states depend with a lot of funding from the federal government because yeah. they they have the Federal Reserve and so their own printing press in, in their basement. Um, so I hope I hope that you're right and that we see more of that. And I think this is also a good point in order to point like a I, I would say like libertarian principle because it's it's good to advocate for the states pushing against that and saying like hey we're not going to comply. Yeah. What is not good from a libertarian point of view, I believe, and please push back if if you disagree with me is to say like like florida for instance to say like hey like we don't allow any schools or so to have like a mask mandate right like why why would they do that like just have the the schools themselves decide that like why why does the why does the government have to do this um so that that because i that also rubs me the wrong way because like many people cheat this on and say like oh yeah like you you're forbidding like people to to have like those rules but I would say like, hey, maybe there's a school that is like everybody has like Delta there and you believe masks are going to slow it down. Like, why would you not do it? Um, should the school all do it? And should teacher unions enforce that? That's, of course, like a, a locus of power. Again, I would say like they shouldn't. But like, why take away um, the decision making rights of like lower, like localized entities? So I would tend to agree with you. in so, for example, in Florida, uh, Rick DeSantis, uh, not Rick, Ron DeSantis, the governor there, he did a couple, two main things. And one of the things he did was he made it illegal for companies to require vaccination uh, for their uh, employees. Um, I'm against that because yeah. that's a private company making that yeah. choice, even if I disagree with that choice. Now, that will also mean that they're not going to be able to enforce this mandate, and that's fine. But he was also saying that, you know, for example, the cruise lines were saying we're not going to let people on the boat unless they're vaccinated. Whether you agree with that or not, it's their boat. So, yeah. you know, let let them make that choice. Uh, I, I will say the, the one caveat I have there is when it is if you were telling private schools or charter schools that they couldn't have, you know, a, a mask mandate individually in their schools if they wanted, I would push back for the same reason when it's yep. a public school. Uh, I tend to be on the side of saying this is an organization that is mandated and run by government that exists from the stolen money of the taxpayer and that therefore uh, anything that it is imposing on people is a violation of their liberty because there's not an opt out or, or you know, there's not an opt out option. Um, but with with that said, I think that, you know, the one, I guess, side effect of the the vaccine mandate is we're, we're, we're the vaccine and mask mandates is that we're increasingly past all that and we now have the federal government mandating it and you know the states that are fighting it um that's a good distinction spike i, I agree with that yeah i th- that would be the one thing i would say is, is are we talking you know a private institution then yeah no they should if they want to say you have to wear uh you know shirts with smiley faces in the middle of them or we won't let you in that's their policy and you know you don't like it then go go to a uh, you know an, a, a, a no smiley face required school or, or whatever but you know when it is now money that's being taken from people and you know part of the public system the stolen uh you know imposed system then i tend to be on the side of saying no just you know any implementate any um infringement that they're putting on people any uh, imposition they're putting on people is inherently a violation of their of their rights certainly they can't then say no one's allowed to wear a mask which no one's saying that it's they're saying let them decide but anyway um so i think we're all on on that i I, this exposed i shouldn't say it exposed because we all knew it exists but this drove home for the umpteenth time even just this year the large and growing political division and polarization that we have in this country and 
again, being American and having been other places and having known many other non-Americans, I am acutely aware of how Americans often forget that there are 7.3 billion other people on the planet. And we, I, I, and I, I'm, I'm sure other people also have this, this thing, but I think Americans more so than maybe anyone else on earth, uh, have this idea, maybe because we can, that we forget that like, there's many other things happening around the world. Um, and that it's not all just us. So, my question for you is because the political polarization in this country is the worst it's been, I would argue, in my lifetime and and possibly at any time since, at the very least, during the era of the Vietnam War and the civil rights era and, and possibly even before that, coming close to like the, the, the civil war era and the reconstruction era and all of that. Is this isolated in the U.S. or is this is political polarization becoming or already the norm in again you're 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 the head of an organization that is in what you say 114 countries is this is this par for the course or is this some a uniquely or specifically american thing no it's not uniquely um american thing uh it has happened in western countries for the last 40 50 years and what this means polarization so let's put like some some more concrete examples behind that it means that uh, the discourse has become increasingly hostile. Um, people see folks from a different party in very negative word, word, uh, ways, and okay. these conversations are getting more hostile. There's less collaboration between people from different sides of the aisle. Um, trust in government has been eroding and is an historically pretty low. Um, this is not only government in terms of politicians. It means legislators. It means all kinds of different institutions. So this this has been going down for for the last decades, and uh, this has been also the case in Mester, in many other Western nations. But also, if you look at Latin America, I mean that continent is very well known for for populism, and right. polarization and populism often go hand in hand. And I think that's a very dangerous route because if we can take a lesson from Latin America, that normally if you are polarized as a nation. That leads to more populist candidates. And we have seen this with Trump and now Biden is the reaction to that. And there will be a reaction to that. Um, that will lead to more and more policies that will erode liberty in different ways coming from both the right or the left. Um, and so if we as Americans and you address the fellow Americans and I'm a green card holder, so maybe soon I can call myself that as well, um, <laughs> uh, would be nice if we try to strive towards more civil discourse um i think that is that is a very important message and there's many different reasons why that's much harder than it used to be and we can definitely dig into that um but yeah it's it's not a us only phenomenon but of course the us does politics differently than any other country in the world and it's more of a spectator sport and it is literally like more sport if you look at it how the, the production value and how it's all being handled um yeah in other countries it's it's I don't want to say serious. It's probably also more boring. It's serious and boring. In the United States, it's all like sensationalizing. Um, and it's like much more scorekeeping. And it's like people enjoy like following their politicians as they follow like their fantasy sports league. So there's right. like much more parallels there. And um, Buchanan already has identified that, the Nobel Prize winner, um, Jim Buchanan. But that, that's what I would say about like the state of, of the United States. It's not unique, but um, U.S. is also trendsetter for many other countries. But this phenomenon has has 
come up in many countries. And in Germany, there's like, for instance, like uh, left-wing, hardcore left-wing uh, parties, unfortunately, right, hardcore right-wing parties. Um, luckily, they're very effective, but they still get elected. But you also have that in France. Uh, you have that in Poland very much with like right-wing populists, but also in Hungary. Um, I mean, look at Belarus, the last dictatorship in, in, yeah. in, in Europe. Um, so this, this is uh, also happening across the world. That's interesting. But so it is at least somewhat unique for us how we follow this almost like either sports or reality television where it's like they're almost like our favorite celebrities. Is that that's not as common in, in the rest of the, I guess, developed world? I mean, political po politics inherently is tribal, right? It's like right. my team versus their team, like my tribe versus their tribe, my red collar versus their blue collar or yellow or whatever right. country and color you want to talk about. So that's innately part of the game, right? So it's always there, but I do think the United States takes us on another level um, with like the bombastic music and the stadiums and, and I don't know, the confetti. I mean, like the, the meme of, uh, of, of Hillary Clinton when, when yes, the balloon comes down, comes balloons. in my mind. Yeah, 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 Hopefully yeah. you can like, if you, if you production value would be great to have that meme coming in right now. Um, if you don't know that, like Google Hillary Clinton and balloon, uh, it's hilarious. So it, it's, it's just like on a, on a different level. And, also like how people talk to one another and like how Trump has, has like really undermined discourse. Um, you can think about, I mean, there was like some good stuff that he did and a lot of good people were, were under Trump in, in positions of influence. Uh, many bureaucracies were, were handled and were able to like remove a lot of rules and stuff like that that needs to be acknowledged. But we also need to acknowledge that civil discourse has become much more hostile. It has become okay to smear one another, to lie, um, and all that kind of stuff. And that is undermining any kind of productive conversations um, whatsoever. And that is like a knock-on effect that I think will be felt for decades to come. And I think that is for all of the things that people see, like, oh, like also they reduce the taxes and so forth. And now Biden increases the taxes and all the things that are more tangible. Yep. We should not ignore the more intangible thing, which is that it has become okay to hate one another more. And that's not good for a republic. And that's not good for the future of this country and for the future of this world, because where the United States goes, uh, still many people follow, even though it has become weaker over the last decades. Right. And I actually so and I, I agree 100 percent. I think the idea of we're seeing it with this covid thing, whatever you think about the virus, about masks, about vaccines, about the actions of others. If at some point you find yourself wishing a stranger dead because they disagree with you, and I've seen it, I've definitely seen it on the, you know, the, the, the people that are angry at the unvaccinated, I wish they just die or, you know, I'll laugh when they when I hear that they're that they're dead or that they're dying. But I've seen it even with some of the people that, you know, get mad when they see someone wearing a mask and they're like, well, you know, they're they're going to lose their oxygen and end up in the hospital. And it's like, why? Or like sheep, care? like, oh, they just watch CNN and they like, yeah, don't think yeah. for themselves. And like, yeah. you're automatically put into a category by just like signaling certain things that should be just your decision. Like if you think masks work, fine. If you don't, fine. then <laughs> so like who the hell right. cares? Right, right exactly. Um, exactly. And so here's my theory. And again, you can tell me what you think of it. And again, this is an American centric theory related to Republicans and Democrats. So it, it, it even if it's true here, it may not have anything to do with anywhere else. And you only have two parties here. Not to forget that, right? You have many other countries, you have like more right parties like we sometimes six well, six i have eight so it's like very unique you don't have many choices here 
Well, and the reason for it, as someone that just ran for vice president, it's very clear why. They, they literally, starting in the 1880s and moving on, the Republican and Democrat parties introduced uh, one uh, barrier and burden after the next to make it increasingly almost impossible to get on the ballot as anything other than a Republican or a Democrat. Um, and and it's, it's, it's actually, you know, seeing last year what the Libertarian Party had to do just to get on all 50 state ballots. If our entry onto the ballot were even remotely as easy as that of the Republicans and Democrats, mil- tens of millions of dollars and countless man hours would have been freed up to actually campaign for office as opposed to just fighting to get on the ballot. But that's a whole other subject. Republic. My theory is that as Republicans and Democrats increasingly mirror one another in terms of actual policy with the policy quote unquote at this point really just being let's do whatever we can to maximize the profits of the cronies that put us in office by like you said taking the the printer out of the basement and you know printing out trillions at this point they're not even printing just adding some more zeros to a ledger handing it off to our cronies sticking everyone else to with the bill for it in order to, I guess, in, for lack of a better word, distract people from the fact that Republicans and Democrats are really just the Republicrats working together to enrich all the cronies that have have bought them and have bought, you know, basically own the media and own every every institution in this society, um, or certainly every economic sector. In order to distract from that, they have to get wider and wider apart in their rhetoric. So instead of just saying, you know, being a Democrat and saying that the Republican is wrong, uh, now it has to be they're murderers and they're Nazis. And the Republican, instead of just saying the Democrat's wrong, they have to say they're a far left wing communist and they're a baby killer and they want to you know, destroy our country. And to, again, to distract from the fact that really they're just working together to screw us all over and that if they can keep us at each other's throats, that divide and conquer, it makes it harder for us to take between the division of being angry and hateful at each other and the constant fear of the various crises that they either create or allow to, to become worse, all of that combined removes any ability for us, most of us, to be able to take a step back and look at this thing more dispassionately and say, wait a second, this is a giant scam. They're running a big scam on us. Do you think there's any validity to, to, to that? Listening to you talking, um, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotations, and it's from Frederick Bastiat. He says, uh, the state is the great fiction, Ed. Um, it's the great fiction by which everyone tries to live at the expense of everyone else. Yeah. And that's what it actually is, because... I don't think they're working together in order to try to increase the spoils for themselves. They're just trying to increase the spoils uh, for the, the group that they are trying to cater to. And okay. uh, when the Republicans are in charge, it's going to be the military industrial complex. When the Democrats are in, in charge, it's going to be like all these environmentalist groups and teachers unions and what have you, you know, and uh, that's, that's the unfortunate thing. And um, if you're not in charge then you don't get something from it. So my, my theory, I mean, there's many different reasons that are behind polarization. So it's, it's multifaceted for sure. There's also like something to it, like social media, because it has become so much easier these days. I don't, and I don't want to say social media is bad. Like those, those takes are like right, stupid, right, right. but what I'm right. saying is it's so much easier to have an informational diet that just consists of the people and folks that you already agree with. And I think most of us are doing that. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, I cannot say like that I'm watching like a whole lot of CNN. I mean, I don't watch any news. Like I'm, I'm hanging out on Twitter way too much, but that's also like highly curated by myself. Um, right. Now it's, it's, it's difficult to do that, but it's very different from like 50 years ago where you had like one anchor and everybody listened to that anchor. And then you had like debates about this because everybody had like the same kind of, of framework. Now the framework is completely taken apart because some people get it from Reddit. Somebody get it from like, God forbid, 4chan or like some other like uh, cesspool. You know, right. um, all of all of that is happening, right? So there's also a problem with that. But my, my theory is that due to the fact that the state is the great illusion at which the, everybody tries to live at the expense of everybody else. Yeah. Due to that fact, government is helping other folks become rich, like through crony, crony capitalism, right? Certain groups right. become rich. Inequality is getting worse. I mean, in, inequality will always happen, right? So, for instance, yeah. that somebody who decides to be like a, a glass blower at like a medi- medieval um, reenactment center will not earn like as much as a Spike Cohen who uh, is earning millions and millions because he's such a great interviewer, right? Um, and, and that's fine. Or like like somebody that has started like a business and employs thousands of people or is a successful investor, and that's because of personal choices and so forth. I mean. That, that happens and that's fine. Or like an artist maybe not earning like as much until they become successful. And that will always happen. But there is so much more inequality put on top of that because of government spending, spending all that money. Especially like here, I'm, I'm living here in Fairfax, so close to Washington, D.C. Like in the last, I think, one or two decades, most of the richest states in the United States, counties, were around the country. And maybe one was around D.C., now, nine out of 10 of the richest counties in the United States are around D.C. Why? Right. Because all of the, the government money and like our money is being spent here. And yeah. so the, then these people become richer and the people who are trying to do something productive with their life don't become richer. Right. So you have like this gap increasing, increasing, increasing. And then people understandably are pissed yeah. and they want to see something happening. And what do they say? They don't say like, oh, we need like small government and we, we need to like read Bastiat and Hayek and Mises and Ayn Rand. They're not going right. to say that, right? That's really complicated ideas that very few people have access to. They don't spend like hundreds of hours reading those things and say like, yep, we understand how language evolves in a spontaneous order. We understand market pricing and that's really complex and complicated. And we're listening to Milton Friedman's free to choose series. And therefore, like we say, we need to have like a libertarian utopia. No, they say like, I'm pissed. That guy is yelling very loudly and represents me. Therefore, I'm electing that person. And yep. then the people sometimes point to the left and sometimes they point to the right. And then then more of that stuff will happen. Maybe some policies will come about and then like the, the former regime gets cut off, but then the next regime is there. Yep. And we need to cut that off and we need to cut the snake off um, uh, the head. And that can only happen if we take away the, the power to create money out of thin air and reward forever money printing and forever getting into debt. That is not sustainable. And unfortunately, it can only be uh, elongated through through the Federal Reserve. And that's what we need to focus on the most, in my opinion. I agree. I agree. And it's it's like you said, there's the, the head of the snake is their ability to control the economy by controlling the money. The 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 um 
and you're free to use this if you want to. The analogy I like to use is imagine we're all playing a game of Monopoly and all of the players are playing by the rules. You know, they, they have their turn, they roll the dice, they, wherever their, their piece goes, they make whatever choice they want on that piece. Everyone's playing by the rules except for one player who every time it's his turn, he goes to the banker and says, give me a trillion Monopoly dollars and stick the rest of them with the bill for it. That's the system that we have right now. It's why we have the inflation we have. It's why we have the growing inequality in income that we have. It's why we have the, the, the fact that a, 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 now the average middle class American cannot afford the cost of living without some level of subsidization of health care or housing or, or, or something else. Um, and I, I will say this, though, one, one caveat I will add. I do believe there is at least some good cop, bad cop routine happening between Republicans and Democrats where they're intentionally playing off of each other. And the reason why is because you, you were mentioning how when the Republicans are in charge, this group of cronies does well. When the Democrats are in charge, this group does well. But there's also an incredible amount of overlap. Like the military industrial complex does well no matter which side's in charge. The, the, the police to prison industrial complex for all of these so-called anti-police rhetoric from the, I guess, left wing of the Democratic Party. Joe Biden just tripled funding for, for police militarization. Uh, you know, uh, Big Pharma, uh, the big telecommunications company, Big Tech... All of these companies do exceedingly and increasingly well, regardless of who's in charge. Regardless of all of that, whether it's two competing groups fighting for the ring to hold it themselves, or or a group that's realized that they can keep everyone else out by pretending they're against each other, or some combination of those things, probably mm -hmm. somewhere in between mm -hmm. those, it really doesn't matter. Like you said, the base of all this is the fact that they can just print out endless reams of money that they force the rest of us to use through, you know, requiring us to pay our taxes in it and by toppling regimes that don't use uh, our IOU notes as their foreign reserves. Um, all that to say, if only there were a, I don't know, decentralized form of currency that existed on some kind of online ledger that is trustless and encrypted in nature. Oh my gosh, what's that? Tell tell us tell us your thoughts on. Uh, I know you've been wanting to talk about it. Tell us your thoughts on what the solution is here when it comes to money. A very good spike, but maybe uh, I also use this opportunity because you and I we have been complaining about the status quo, and uh, I hope that that your listeners don't get depressed. It's good to to point out what the problems are and to understand them. But I also, I'm I'm in the business of selling hope, um, and we can talk about Bitcoin a little bit later, but. I also am okay. incredibly hopeful because I see solutions being implemented every single day um, because I'm working with young people, with students, right? And um, we, are, we are training students and we are giving them tools and resources so they become um, more capable activists, meaning yep. they are organizing events, they're going out there and convincing others. They are sometimes picking up garbage with like a shirt that has like a libertarian quote on there and, and wrapping our ideas in a, in a meaningful way. And that has translated just in the last year, even though it was COVID, to over 2,500 events worldwide with over 600,000 people attending those events. Wow. 620,000, I think it was. Last and year? Yeah, last year alone, yeah, during the pandemic. And that's just what the students are doing, Spike. And that's what makes me hopeful. It's not my staff doing this. I have 67 full-time staff members and they're fantastic. However, that's the work that the students are doing. So they're learning how to invite speakers, how to give presentations, how to organize themselves, how, how to lead others. And right. that will be the generation of leaders of liberty tomorrow, the next Spike Cohens, the next people who are like the next Justin Amashes, the next people who are yep. going to like run for office or become journalists or academics or, 
or rappers or whatever, you know, there's so many different ways how we can spread liberty, but we need to with the, the right people with the right ideas in, in charge. And that's what we're producing right now. And our students go on and start nonprofits. Like I've recently learned that out of like, I think like 25 or so free market right-wing organizations within Africa, like over half of them are either run by Students for Liberty folks or have been started by Students for Liberty folks. So the whole, like, there's a whole network of like libertarians in Africa working on this that hasn't existed like 10 years ago. Same as the case in Brazil. And we can see this here in the United States as well. We have like somebody elected in the, in the parliament in New Hampshire. His name is uh, Tim Baxter and he's running for Congress soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a long run play, but all of the people that just like stand at the sidelines and complain, right? Like for instance, like the people from the left that's saying like, oh, everything is bad and everybody's like a Nazi and, and, right. and so forth. And just like wagging their finger at everyone to, to yep. comply to their view of society and their morality. If you just complain and don't do anything about it, you will never develop the skills that will get you in influential positions. You might be like a good lower level bureaucrat or whatever, but you will not achieve something great. But the students that I'm seeing, like for instance, um, we we have someone that is now like just last year alone, uh, one has become the vice minister in Ecuador for economy and technology. And we have one vice minister, uh, her name is Egle in Lithuania, also for the economy. She started European Students for Liberty with me. So we were in the trenches building up European Students for Liberty. And now she's a vice minister. Wow. Imagine now, like 10 years from now, like if you go to, to like the smoke filled rooms at the World Economic Forum, like you will see social service students for liberty. Hopefully, if you go to the New York Times editorial in like 20 years, that will be all like people that wear the same pin that I'm wearing right now. That's what we're going for. It will take time, but that there is hope for that. And one can do something in, in your own environment and in within your own niche and what you're good at and what you're passionate about, like you're doing with these podcasts. Some people yeah. might make YouTube videos. Some other people might make music. Who the hell knows? But that will empower you. This will give you more skills, will be make you more employable. And that is so much more the libertarian way than just ranting in our basements and just wagging the finger at government and just hope the Fed will uh, crumble. That's not going to happen anytime soon. But that right. at least fills me with hope. And, and the work that you're doing here is, is a perfect example as well. And so I applaud you for that too. Well, thank you. And let's talk about, before we get into Bitcoin, let's talk about what Students for Liberty is doing. So you're, uh, SFL, I've actually done some um, some of the mentoring. There was a, uh, I'm forgetting what it was called well, now. thank you. But, uh, where Students for Liberty had, uh, they were sponsoring, it was almost like a, a Shark Tank type of thing where people would present, students would present a business idea they had that was a libertarian-based business idea and I, I did mentoring for a couple of the people that were in that but you guys are focused cool. on you're, you're teaching young people how to promote liberty uh in the most educated and, and compassionate ways that are that are possible what are some of the specific kinds of techniques and and ideas that you're teaching students for those who really don't know what students for liberty is doing other than you're on college campuses what are some of the things that you're teaching and ideas and, and techniques that you're teaching right so what we do is we carefully select students that want to be part of our programs. So it's basically like a volunteer training program. You can envision us as like the boy and girl scouts for libertarianism without all of the drama. Right? That, that's us in a nutshell. And so once you okay. join, like you've, you will be screened and we are very selective who we're letting in because we want people with the right ideas um, that want to actually do the work because we are asking our volunteers to invest at least like five hours every single week okay. um, to earn students for liberty. And some of them do much, much more. So that translated last year, I think, in like a little bit over 700 
thousand volunteer hours dedicated to spreading the ideas of liberty um, just by our students. Um, and then they go through like a online training, uh, multiple choice. They have to read stuff. They have to watch videos. It's pretty sophisticated. It's, and then you're part of our programs. You get access to like, like your own email address and you will be plugged into like a network of volunteers and you can pursue your own goals. That's the cool thing. Like we're not going to tell you like, hey, start like four campus or like three campus organizations in, in right. Michigan right now um, or write three blog posts. We're saying like, hey, what do you want to do? And then we try to give them like resourcing, um, resources, mentorship and other training on top of that. And some people get like fundraising training. Some people get IT training. And there's like different levels that you can like go up the ranks. So much so that some of our students oversee 50 to 150 other students. They're effectively running like small, medium-sized enterprises and coordinating all of this, this activity across like different states or different countries even. And uh, it's really remarkable. You sometimes meet like a 21-year-old who um, has organized an event with like 400, 500 people and has gotten like Red Bull and Subway to sponsor their event. Like we had those cases. Um, and those people will be then the, the future leaders of Liberty. So right. when I started, like it, it, Students for Liberty has changed my life. I'm a product of the organization. Yeah. Um, when I started, I was sitting around like with seven people and we like trying to figure out like what we were going to do in Europe. We had no idea if it would work out. Um, and I felt a little bit intimidated by all of these folks initially because they had like so much more experience than me. And they were like, some of them were younger. Uh, like I knew the ideas better because I was like studying, like just reading the ideas all the time. But just like six months later, I was able to raise 50,000 euros as a young 20 year old and started my own training program and suddenly interviewing hundreds of people honing my interview skills and putting together like a curriculum in order to train like the first 20, what we call local coordinators, the volunteers within Europe. Um, and some of them are now vice ministers, uh, which That's is, which incredible. is interesting to think about. And, but these skills, like I wouldn't have gotten a fraction of these skills if I would have just stayed in university or taken some internships. Like the real world experience I got through Students for Liberty. And that's the, the experience I want to replicate with the thousands of volunteers that we have here in the United States, but that we also have in Afghanistan, in Venezuela, in Belarus, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and those are people who share the same ideas that you and I cherish, talk about the same thinkers, maybe sometimes local thinkers that we don't know. Um, but that's just a thing of beauty to see this community coming together, just working towards bettering themselves by bettering others and spreading the ideas that, that you and I cherish. It's it's incredible. And, you know, you said you're you're raising the future leaders. Some of them are already the current leaders. Like if you describe someone who's 20 years old and has already put together a, you know, multi, you know, nearly thousand person event that's been sponsored by Red Bull, that's no longer future leader. They're already actively leading. They may have you know, further along to go before they get to their, their, their full, you know, their, their full character arc there, but they're already well into leadership. That's incredible stuff that you were doing. And so is, what is a typical, and maybe this is a, not a good question to ask, because maybe there's not a typical, but in your mind, like, uh, certainly maybe stateside, at least, what does a typical, if there even is such a thing, students for liberty, you know, college-based outreach type event look like? Like what what, mm -hmm. what kind of example, like can you give an example of what that actually looks like? Right. Um, right now we have this fall semesters, 225 tablings. That's a okay. verb now, I guess. Um, yes. Which means that <laughs> you set up a table, you have like a banner um, with Students for Liberty swag on top of it, like some books, you have a sign-up sheet. 
And uh, we're training our students how to do this because you have to be like somewhat of a salesman. Like, because if you sit like at the table like this, yep. and say like, mm, yep. I'm a libertarian, like nobody will going to talk to you, right? That's yep. that's that's not going to work. So you have to stand in front of it. You have to be energetic. You have to use like, uh, I don't know, your skills. You already have to put like yep. the names down so that you don't have like an empty list that says like, oh, I don't want to give my name if nobody gives their name. You want to have like cookies there so that people get a sugar rush and stay with you. You know, you, you, you get trained on this. So that's a typical outreach event. And we're doing this. And right now we're doing this through the lens um, that we call right now the campaign, not our culture war. Because there's so much talk about the culture war. And I believe that the majority of Americans are sick of it. I believe that people want to discuss ideas and want to have open exchange. And they don't want to just like point fingers and feel self-righteous. I mean, it feels good to be self-righteous. Yes. And we can all fall into that trap. But I don't think that generally people go to university to have that experience. Right. Um, and we're just saying like, hey, it's not our culture war. And you want to make a decision between like choosing your own life and live and let live. Or do you want to enforce your preferences and make everybody comply to your own view of society? Right. If you believe that, then don't come to us. If you believe the former and if you like live and let live, then let's talk and, and have a good conversation about like what can help the least fortunate in society? What can solve uh, environmental issues which right now the gen z's um and and younger millennials care very much about i mean many people yes. care about but specifically that demographic so that's one of the typical events that we do but like a normal journey is somebody joins um they are 19 years old 20 years old they are, might have an imposter syndrome they don't know what they can accomplish they have never had like true ownership over something then we yep. give them ownership they find that tribe um they're getting more confident they maybe organize an event and maybe it's, it's just like beer pizza and anywhere and uh, then they had a good time and then they might organize something with 50 people. Maybe then they drive to other campuses and we put people there and uh, they gain more confidence and then they rise up the ranks and um, not everyone, of course, but some of them become like more competitive and, and want to have like higher positions of influence. And maybe some of them organize large scale events with hundreds of people. Some of them might do YouTube videos, for instance, like Christian Watson. He has his own uh, YouTube channel now. He is fantastic. I, 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 I know him actually Christian. At the I've, yeah, I've, uh, um, uh, What's his show called? I've been on it twice. I know, I know Christian Watkins, uh, Watson. Um, I have to look it up now because I've been on his show twice. Spike Cohen, Christian. Yeah, that's the reason I'm mentioning him because I know you were on it, and uh, he told me oh, like he would not have pe- pe- been like pensive pe- 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 politics. Yeah, pensive yeah. politics. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, he's gonna we're gonna have him like speak about his experience of like being called like an OEO all the time and not being yep. able to talk about the ideas that he cherishes because he's he he happens to be black, and um. So it's good to have like fantastic stuff that he's doing, but we didn't tell him like, Hey, do YouTube videos, but we just connected him with a bunch of folks and we have helped him uh, build some of his skills and his confidence. And he says like, Hey, like this helped me tremendously. And now he's doing his own thing. And uh, that's such a thing that we couldn't have predicted, but um, that's a little bit of an atypical journey, but atypical journeys are normal within students for Liberty. Nobody told me to start the, the training program. Um, the, the founder of the organization said like, oh, what you did what? You raised 50,000 euros and you're starting this now? Uh, yeah. We didn't talk about it, but okay, go for it. Um, <laughs> and that that's the environment that liberty and and ownership and property rights allow you to do. And we're trying to replicate that for students because normally students just have the experience of their household with parents. Then yep. they have the experience of schools and the experience of universities, which is all like you have to jump through hoops and make people happy without like you really truly have ownership. We give people ownership and say like, hey, here's the training, here's the basics, but now go do shit and change the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so they do. 
I love it, man. And I'm telling like, as you're saying this, I'm thinking back to all the SFL alum that I've worked with, you know, Christian, uh, Josh Eckel, uh, who is in Tennessee, who's I think now he's your is is it marketing director? Uh, yeah, director of marketing. Yeah, yeah, director of marketing. And uh, he used to be the chair of the Libertarian Party of Tennessee. He has a lobbying group called For All Tennessee in based in Tennessee, where they have successfully in the Tennessee legislature, they've ended no knock uh, warrants, uh, and they've ended chokeholds for police officers. They have greatly reformed civil asset forfeiture, uh, almost eliminated it for the vast majority of cases, uh, introduced a uh, um, uh, a duty to intervene for police officers, like real policy changes being made at the statewide level by by him and, and another person named Justin that are that are doing that. Josh Eckel, uh, who else? Uh, and he's in his Chandler. early 30s, right? No. Yeah. No, he's a kid. I don't even know if he's in his early 30s. I think he's in his late 20s. Maybe he's in his 30s. I think he's in his late 20s. He's, Maybe, he yeah. Like he's, he's young, yeah. I'm I mean, Robbie Suave, like, like, as, as part of the preparation for this, talking oh, about Suave, like yeah. the mandate, Robbie Suave, like, he went through our programs, and he just had an article in the New York Times about like how Biden is, is misguided. And yep. many of my talking points I just stole from him, and he's an alumnus of our Students <laughs> for Liberty, and I'm not ashamed to say that. He's fantastic. Yeah. You know, and uh, another guy, uh, Jared Meyer, um, he was um, the assistant to the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors to President Trump. Hardcore libertarian. Yep. He's talking about like he has written books about the sharing economy and also like uh, uh, the, how how bad licensing laws are for for workers. And uh, he has won many different. Uh, he had many different policy impacts across the country on a state level and a federal level. And he's in his early thirties, right? And uh, that's just what we produced in the last 13 years since SFL exists. But now think about the next 13 or 30 years. Yeah. And um, yeah. I'm, I'm very grateful that I have so many great uh, staffers and, and uh, donors that, that provide the multi-million dollar resources that we spend every year to make this possible. So um, it's a privilege. Yeah. No, it's amazing. I'm thinking Jeremy Chandler out of uh, uh, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, Hunter and Tyson, the, the two people I was mentoring or have been mentoring and working with in, in Utah, just some incredible people coming out of SFL. It's really great work that you guys are doing. And, you know, I often say, you know, the electoral politics, there is a place for that in fighting for liberty. Um, from a standpoint of maybe harm reduction or trying to, if nothing else, use it as a uh, to leverage it to bring people into the message for liberty. But we don't believe that solutions are going to be centrally planned and political in nature. We believe that they're going to come from the market. As you said, they're going to be ground up, bottom up ideas, individual human action, people working together voluntarily to create organic organizations that are based on everyone's uh, perceived self-interest in being involved and, and helping others. Um, and to see SFL doing that, that's incredible. It's something you kept talking about, and it's something I, I say ad nauseum whenever I'm asked about it, is it is crucial for libertarians who are, we're often very cerebral. We systemize things when we look at stuff. You know, people tend to look at things with some combination of intellect, emotion, and uh an intuition we're ten, general population we tend to be a little bit higher on the end of uh intellect and a little bit lower on emotion and intuition or it's certainly yeah. on intuition we're not jonathan heights jonathan heights workshop said very well yes yeah we we talk a lot about 
systems and ideas and not so much about like people and feelings and things like that. And, and most people operate more on that emotional and intuitive level. And it's crucial that we meet people where they are. We show them that we care. And then from there, we can lower their cognitive defenses and show them that we understand what's going on, that we have the best solutions. But first, you have to kind of meet people where they are in, in, in that moment. And it sounds like that's exactly what Students for Liberty is doing, because Gen Z you know, the, the kids that are in school right now, more so than possibly any living generation, have a very high level of caring, even if they have no idea what to do, caring about others, not just themselves, about others. There's been this sort of socialization. Obviously, they've been prepped for agreeing with collectivism, but a, a, a positive side effect of that is that they care a lot about others and how to fix things for everyone, not just their immediate concern. But then another thing that they have is a very deeply ingrained sense of consent culture, that you can't touch someone unless they're okay with it, explicitly so, and that you can't force someone into something unless they're okay with it, explicitly so, and that everyone has that autonomy. That gets twisted by people in power, but those two things are there. And if we're able to meet them where they are, where they already have this sense of wanting to do good in the world, and they already have this intuitive understanding that we really shouldn't be making people do things that are against their own will, then that's a natural libertarian, once you can disabuse them of all the nonsense they've been told outside of that, that's someone that, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, that that's someone who is primed, uh, especially at a young age, to take the world by storm as a, as a libertarian thought and action leader. No, absolutely. And we see that. So some of the slogans that we are using that really resonate with, I mean, everyone, but specifically also Gen Zs or Zoomers, is uh, don't tread on anyone. It's not just like me, 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 me. Yeah, it's people, yeah, yeah. it's family, it's my community. Because that's that's what at the end of the of the day, like all the classical liberals always cared about as well. It's not only like the the nucleus, right? Yes, we're using methodological individualism as our yeah. as our like in, in, as our guide and as our theory. However, that doesn't mean that that we can live in a vacuum. Like markets wouldn't work without other people. Um, and all you. of the things that matter. Like what I what I sometimes I like your analogy and then. Like the, sometimes that I'm saying like, hey, let's just imagine that we have accomplished Libertopia. Like there's no Federal Reserve, there's private money production, like there's, yep. there's like no cronyism. Like you can, you can just get a phone plan, like just around the corner, you can get healthcare, it's all private, it's beautiful. Yeah. Imagine in that world, you spike, you come, you come home to, to your wife um, and say like, hey, I got this, this fantastic podcast interview and this person like really make me feel good about like my work that I was doing. And she would say like, what are you talking about? I don't fucking care. Right. Or you, you then go to your parents and say like, Hey, I have this super great opportunity to run for vice president of the libertarian party. And they say like the libertarian party is stupid. And what you're doing is stupid. Like, let me like get, go get a job as a plumber. Right. Imagine a world like that, where nobody reflects your feelings, where how you seeing the world, and nobody cares right you can have perfect libertopia you wouldn't give a shit yep. it would be horrific to live in that you rather have like some sort of like hybrid like i don't know venezuelan thing but but you have like family and, and friends you have people that care about you exactly, exactly. so someone still cares and, about you right and if we don't show that we care about other people and we are not happy ourselves in how we're carrying ourselves with our ideology how will we ever convince anyone 
Yes. Yes. This is what I tell people. That's something stuff that we're teaching our students. And so we also talk about emotional intelligence. We also have like mental health resources that I don't think any other libertarian or conservative student organization has. Every student gets access to, um, like they have an app. They can request like master level psychologists can have phone calls with them if they're struggling with something like we we care about our people we care about other people and i think that's needs what the libertarian message needs to be about not only um maximizing consumer welfare which i'm sure not many people make that argument but i'm just using hyperbole right there oh no no trust me i've had plenty of people who tell me that i'm going down a, a loser's path by you know focusing so much on people's feelings you know it's about the facts and i'm like okay great it's true that facts don't care about your feelings it's also true that their feelings don't care about your facts until they know exactly. that you care about them <laughs> like there's the old phrase you know no one know no one cares what you know until they know that you care why should anyone give a shit about what you think if they don't think you give a damn about them like why would why should they if you if you don't care about them why should they care about you or anything that you have to say like so it's it is a it is imperative if only from an outreach standpoint not to mention the fact that that's what this is actually all about i think the reason that so many political activists end up becoming like depressed and anxious and you know end up in these existential crises is because they lose the forest for the trees and forget that this is not just about you know looking at a chart and trying to make the bad thing go down and the good thing go up it's about what that even represents if you're not happy if you don't have a social network if if people uh, and i don't mean like a social network like a, a online one but like a, a an actual network of people that care about you and that you care about them then you're losing out on the entire human experience in the first place not to mention again the fact that it's impossible to reach out to people and bring people into the fold if if we have the most empathetic ideas on earth you own yourself you own the product of your labor and of your, of your labor itself you own your body no one should be able to harm you or infringe upon you you should only have to work uh, in concert with those who want to work with you no you owe no one anything but non-aggression against them and vice versa and we can build a, a, an amazing society but then we present it in the most unempathetic uncaring cold and doctrinaire way it's going to make it look like we're either lying or we're we're idiots who lost the forest for the trees and i'm really glad to hear that students for liberty is understanding that you know the the purpose of this the 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 praxis of liberty such a big part of that is showing that we have the best ideas as evidenced by the fact that we're not miserable <laughs> exactly um i i it's a beautiful rant uh spike i really enjoyed that it was not a rant it was it was as a negative connotation, I say that in the in no, 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 uh, no. respectful way. Um, no, um, that was that was good, and I enjoyed it, and I hundred percent agree. And you, that's what the fact people don't get right. Even if you have shitty facts, but you carry yourself, and you maybe make a friend along the way when you're arguing for something, and they see that you're happy with your own ideology. That's the best argument you can ever make. Instead of like citing like twenty studies that showing that the minimum wage doesn't work. Yes. And that's actually so, what the facts are. So the facts people should get the facts straight. Yep. Yep. No, you're a hundred percent correct. I'm I'm very I already knew Students for Liberty was doing great work. Hearing it from right from the top that this that empathy and and demonstration of care is like at the absolute crucial top demonstrates to me why you guys have been so successful in what you're doing and I, I love it. Um and we're we're gonna sell it doesn't sell as easily because wet meat sells very well, right? I mean there's other organizations that are just uh, selling um, hatred and uh, triggering the lips and they are very, very successful. But 
uh, in the long successful in terms of making money, I guess, successfully in reaching yeah. the goals, I would say uh, probably more harmful than helpful. But that's a that's a debate for another day. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure there's much of a debate because I, I mean, I'm sure they could. But if it's not working, then it didn't work. Right. Like the, the reason someone like a Bernie Sanders can come through with just literally just recycling and refrying some of the worst political ideologies and, and, and centrally planned ideas of the last century uh, is because he, he goes and he, he demonstrates a level of care about people and, 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 and listens to and at least pretends to care about their concerns. I, he probably genuinely does care. He just believes that these terrible ideas are the best way to do it or, or he's lying. Either way, he said he doesn't go to someone and go, you know, Marx had really good ideas about the labor theory of value. He says, you know, you can't afford your schooling. You're stuck with student debt. You can't afford to live. And meanwhile, here are these incredible incredibly wealthy people are having stuff handed to them and that's not right this system was built against you and we're going to fix it and that's actually like showing that you know what someone's living like as opposed to just telling them well you know this is a free market capitalist system and this is the way it works you know they're going to go with that but if instead someone else is there saying yes that's true all these things are happening to you and it's and here's why it's happening to you and here's why that plan's not going to work and why our plan's going to work by the way would you like to get together we're going to sit down and, and we're going to eat pizza and we're, we're going to, you know, hang out, eat some Chinese and, and, you know, talk about some ideas about how we can fix it. What a great way to reach people. This this is fantastic. I'm going to give you a chance towards the end to, to promote uh, every way that people can reach out for Students for Liberty. But um, we're, we're coming up on about a, an hour and 40 minutes. And so I do want to talk about DeFi and, and Bitcoin and all of that, because I know I agree with you that I believe that that is from a market standpoint, probably if not the most powerful single tool towards dismantling. Uh, well, put it this way. You know the Rothbard button, right? You know, Murray Rothbard yeah. talks about if there were, you know, the, the true abolitionists, the, the people who truly, you know, hate the state, if there were a button that you could press and it would make the state go away, would you press it? Even if you knew that at least temporarily there might be some issues of inequities and things like that that would happen as a result of this house of cards falling, would you press it knowing that, you know, in 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 the long term, everyone's going to be better off and the, the true abolitionist would press it so hard that he'd, he'd break his own hand? Is Bitcoin the Rothbard button? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, I would say no, because it's very gradual. The Rothbard right. button would be like destroying everything overnight, which I'm too much of a Hayekian to agree with that approach, um, because okay. I believe that complex systems, if you if you screw with them, then you have all kinds of unintended consequences and people's right. status, they will be status tomorrow as well. And then maybe uh, the, the institutions that have grown will be worse um, or that have been That's destroyed fair. that grow after that will be worse. But um, I believe that Bitcoin is the single most important technology that can bring about liberty in our lifetime mm -hmm. right if i had to if i had to choose between like bitcoin or like the political process or whatever it would be every single time bitcoin and i would only talk about bitcoin and not about like the the 7000 other cryptocurrencies because bitcoin is the only truly possible shot at us having a money that is censorship resistant that is entirely decentralized, which you cannot say about Ethereum and others, that is absolutely in the power of the people. Like yesterday, for instance, I did a transaction um, and I did it, I set my own fee. Like I, I set my own fee 
I said to whom it should get. I said how much should get to that person. And nobody in the world could have stopped me to do this. I didn't have to ask any single third party to do this. I was doing it on my own installation of the Bitcoin core, uh, core network and so forth. So nobody could prevent this. So you are your own bank. And that is just a magnificent thing. And there's many criticisms that you can, can venture against Bitcoin, but you cannot say it doesn't do anything. There's over 120 right. million people at this point that use it. I know people, um, anecdotally speaking, but also personally, whose life has been saved by this because they, Bitcoin is the only lifeline that they have in countries with like two-digit inflation. Right. And there's like billions of people, over 2 billion people live in this environment. There's billions of people who are unbanked that don't even have access to banks. We have banks, we have Venmo, we have PayPal. Like we are the elite. We are like completely not the, the first target group that, that should be using Bitcoin. Because right now we know about people that have been able to save Bitcoin in Afghanistan. And now they had to leave everything behind. They could not bring anything. But they were able to bring like a small okay, sheet of paper where they had thousands of dollars written down because they had the code of the access to their keys with the Bitcoin keys. You cannot do that with gold. You cannot do that with stacks of dollar notes because you would be just robbed and people would take it away from you. Right. People can do this with Bitcoin. This is revolutionary. And that's the reason why we see like some countries adopting it and hundreds of millions of people having it. And you're seeing the prices to being this high. And they will, I believe they will continue to rise. All of this is, of course, not investment advice. But I believe that this could lead to more and more people putting their dirty fiat into Bitcoin therefore taking away fiat money from the government. And then more and more people chose Bitcoin. At some point, people will not use the, the fiat money anymore and, the, and everybody will realize this. And that's, that's the biggest the choice that we, that, that we potentially face in the future. And now we have seen Ukraine just uh, introduced legislation that they want to make it like uh, maybe like a legal tender in the future. So El Salvador has just introduced it and El Salvador is not perfect. And the, the government is also corrupt and the guy in charge is, but I think it's, it's a good attempt and it has so much so much hope for the future because this could be like the first real true money that we're seeing emerging in front of our eyes that can compete with any kind of money that we before. It's also superior to gold, in my opinion. So I'm very excited about it. And if people ask me, the single best thing that you can do with your time right now is studying Bitcoin and learning more about it. Don't believe me. Do your own research. But start reading the Bitcoin standard or... Uh, listening to Andreas Antonopoulos on YouTube or just type in like, don't listen to like all of the people that just try to sell you stuff and you should buy like this coin and that coin. There's a lot of scammers right. out there. Um, try to um, also read, maybe you type in in Google, uh, uh, gradually then suddenly serious. Um, it's by Parker Lewis. Start reading that. And I think it will answer like many of your questions, but single best thing that you can do with your time. And I'm very thrilled about this. Yeah. I, I, there's you don't you certainly don't have any argument for me that Bitcoin um, and, and honestly in the blockchain in general uh, are the future uh, in the same way that Bitcoin that that crypto is basically making fiat completely not just obsolete but a no brainer to get out of um, blockchain solutions for things in the future like uh, a registry of ownership that crosses borders and doesn't require any kind of government involvement through this NFT system. Uh, a, uh, a, a dispute resolution programs through uh, through uh, proof of um, 
uh, proof of stake type of system where people uh, are basically large groups are, are voting um, anonymously on different things for dispute resolution instead of a, a centralized court system. There are so many ways that, you know, the blockchain in general and, and decentralized blockchain based everything is going to make the quote unquote services provided by government look increasingly like just completely unnecessary. And of course, if you take away uh, the government's ability to just print you know, fake value out of nothing and rob you from out, you know, rob your wealth out from under you by taking the, the pizza. And instead of it having eight slices, they put it into a hundred slices. You still get one slice. You you still get to keep your slice, but they took everything else from you having something like this. I, I do want to ask because I've, I've, I've only briefly touched on the argument between the, I guess, Bitcoin maximalists, the people who say that Bitcoin is, it sounds like that's what you're saying, is really all, only where it's at or is really the only one. And the people saying, no, it's going to be more of a, of a bourse of different options. Can you, What is your argument against, for example, people saying that it's not just going to be one currency and that that currency is Bitcoin, that either... I guess there are two different arguments. One that it's going to be a few different main currencies and not the shit coins. I'm not talking about scam coins and stuff like that, but the the more stable main coins uh, or that there is one main coin, but it's Ethereum or Dogecoin or whatever. What what, what are your arguments against that? Um, yes. So I would describe myself as a non-toxic maximalist um, because I believe that there are, look, there will be only one money that will win out um, because people will want to like the the most trustworthy, the most robust um, money, and that's what his, history has shown. That's the reason why gold has been best. Yes, there's silver, but gold has been like predominantly been used throughout millennia, whereby silver has been used very very little, or it would have been expressed in gold as well later on. But like gold was the standard, right? And uh, I believe that that's the case in, in Bitcoin as well. I, I do believe that there might be like some other applications possible, and maybe people fund like owning jpegs interesting that and they can own the jpeg even though everybody can copy it and but they can say like oh it's mine still after all and if they care about fine like i'm an economist like value subjective if you see value in that stuff there's value right it's easy as that is this going to be revolutionary for the world me like will this be like will you be able to do everything on blockchain technology outside of money um i'm not entirely sure because you still have the problem like who's entering that data and how do you make sure that that is confirms with the protocol if you don't have like a really good proof of work network i have not right. seen like many applications that are super exciting on this and many people say blockchain but they're just talking about it's just a database and they just call it blockchain right um right. so there, there's a lot of hype on about this and there's like all these cycles like two years ago it was icos initial coin offerings do you hear about them anymore no at some points this was crypto kitties like now it's it's nfts and let's take ethereum for example Maybe it can be like, there's a lot of stuff happening on there, but it is not really decentralized. It can be changed. The monetary policy has been changed like seven times. If you look at the, how it's been changed, it looks like somebody painted with a crayon all over it in order to change the monetary policy. And that's not how you create money. I mean, it might be useful to creating some other like smart contract stuff, but proof of stakes centralizes stuff as well, because the people who have the most Ethereum will have the most power. Bitcoin has been attacked by the people who have the most power. In 2017, uh, during the block size war, uh, we don't have to go into detail about this, but basically the miners, the big exchanges, including Coinbase, like the biggest names, like including like Roger Ware and others back in the day, yep. all of them wanted to have like changing Bitcoin and changing the protocol from what I just said, basically undermining the value of the coins and making it also like less powerful. And they had good arguments why they wanted to do it. 
right? But they were not able to push it through against everyone of the decentralized network because the network was just not adopting it. And then you had to split and you have like Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin now. So all that being said is right now, if you're interested in this space, and I said everybody should be interested in it because it's about the future of humankind. And if you think that that money is a problem in society, you have to understand Bitcoin. The only thing I would say is first spend your time and resources studying Bitcoin and why it is very good before you get like confused and distracted by all of these shiny things that promise you the world and right. Dogecoin and all that kind of bullshit that Elon Musk, like ignore the noise and focus on the thing that has shown itself to be robust in 13 years has been attacked over and over and over again. And is still around and is being used as money and, and has the biggest uh, opportunity. Yes, there might be a technology possible on Ethereum that is, that is interesting or ADA or whatever other coin that's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have all kinds of different problems and many of them also go bust. And I would just really, really worry about people that dump like their hard-earned resources in something that just sounds sexy and then they lose it all. And I know too many stories where people have lost within the shitcoin casino um, and that's still going on. So just count, count on this thing that, that you understand best. And so do your research, start with Bitcoin and then take it from there. Don't believe me. Yeah, no, I, I, I like and it's like uh, anytime I say I do, I, I laughed earlier because I say the same thing as you. I'm like, anytime I go into a rant on uh, or anything on monetary stuff or an investment or whatever, I'm like, that's not financial advice. I'm just a guy just say I'm just giving my opinion. But I, I want to uh, I, I do I want to ask because uh, Mr. Just Because Oh, Just Because took me a second. Uh, he He's asking, uh, and I've, I've heard this before, and I've I've tried my best to explain it, but you're probably better than me at explaining it. He said, you know, is basically, is Bitcoin like an, a new world order currency? And I've heard this before that, you know, Bitcoin is this global currency to, to you know, take away, uh, you know, government currencies and replace it with one world currency. And, you know, there's a NWO element to it. Can, can you explain, I guess, maybe very briefly what Bitcoin is and why it's not, you know, the new world order, or at least not in a Bohemian Grove, you know, uh, uh, reptilians from Mars stealing your children type of way? Um, yeah, I've not studied reptilians too much, so I'm not sure like what power <laughs> they have been uh, attributed to. But um, I would say that the the thing that would the easiest tell you is that Bitcoin has been tried to shut down by many different nation states already. Like Nigeria tried to do it, and they actually have hilarious conversations in the Senate where they said like, "Oh, it doesn't work. We cannot ban it. People are still using it." Pakistan tried to do it. Uh, many other countries, and uh, and it still it still works. And why does it work? Because it's decentralized. Right. And nobody, like, they can make it difficult to adopt. Like, they can, for instance, close all of the on-ramps, basically saying, like, no bank can be able to transact with it anymore. But you can still do it peer-to-peer. Nobody, as I've said, like, yesterday, nobody could, like, if they put a gun to my shoe, they can say, like, don't do this transaction. But generally, like, I can do that on my phone. I can do that from wherever. I have my own server. It's pretty easy to set up. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to learn. But nobody can forbid any of this. So you can use it or not. It's absolutely up to you. And if Bitcoin becomes like the, the choice of people and as gold was, like there was a chance where gold was volatile for many, many hundreds of years because people didn't know if it would become a money or not. Right. And people right now don't know if, if Bitcoin will become a money. And that's the reason why it's volatile. Um, but all that being said, it's, it, it's being valued by hundreds of million, like over 100 million people. And it's growing every single day. It's growing faster than the internet. If you look at adoption rate, that should tell you something. And it's it's growing even though China has been cracking down on it 
and has shut down all of the miners in the country, which was a huge shock to the system. But Bitcoin kept trucking, it kept yeah. working. People try to attack it all the time. And don't you think if government was able to forbid it, they would? They oh, can yeah. forbid it much, much easier to, to forbid Ethereum because you just have to go to like some of the nodes providers, which are very centralized. But there's over probably at this point over 20,000 nodes. And if you run it through a Tor network and a VPN, nobody knows you are running this thing. And it's just a computer. You have to forbid computers and the internet in order to shut this thing down. Yeah. And I don't think that's going to happen. So will it become like the money that everybody uses at some point in the future, i.e. hyper-Bitcoinization? I see there's a chance to that. And I think the chance is non-zero. Um, will we see this in my lifetime? I don't know. Um, it has been faster than adoption internet. So yeah. maybe we have to use it, but what what's the problem with that? Then we have a money that is gaining in value instead of losing in it. And there's nobody else that can just inflate it or um, create like a fractional reserve system on top of it. I mean, you can, um, but it will not be as worse as it is with the fiat system because you can still go to the settlement layer, which is Bitcoin. Right. Well, and it also it's not imposed. You know, a lot of people will say to me, well, you know, yeah, the Federal Reserve is doing what they're doing, but it's still a market based currency because you can choose not to use it. You can use something else. And I say, yeah, unless you want to pay your taxes um, or unless you want to buy services from most um, through the central banking system, certainly. Um, And so now, no, you can't. If you want to invest in the market, for example, the stock market. You have to use U.S. dollars because that's regulated through the SEC. Uh, if you want to make a donation to someone politically, uh, you have to do that yeah. in U.S. dollars because that's uh, regulated through the FEC. So even if you have uh, cryptocurrency, you have to convert it into U.S. dollars, fiat currency to, to give to them. If you want to do any kind of cross-border transactions through the central banking system, you have to use fiat currency. Um, and you it's, know, all it's these such a pain. Things. We have staffers in like what? Um 20, 30 countries, I don't know. But like yeah. we have a dozen staffers that we're paying in Bitcoin because it's so much cheaper than uh, doing it with, with fiat money. And we don't right. have to deal with a lot of regu- like a lot of regulation. We can yeah. just do it and it doesn't take long at all. Yeah. And um, yeah. soon we will be right now setting up like lightning donations as well, um, which is also new. Not many nonprofits are doing that. Lightning Network is on top of Bitcoin because Bitcoin is generally slow, but that's not a problem um, because the lightning network is like very fast and very cheap. And so we're trying to, uh, plug into that network and we're playing around with all kinds of different things and you can buy a cup of coffee now with it because it was a long time a, co- a problem with bitcoin that you couldn't do that now you can thanks to the lightning network and a lot of smart people are, are building on on top of of this and um yeah it's 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 really exciting and uh, it makes me sleep well at night knowing that i have something that is absolutely scarce and that's also something for your audience to take away and i know that we have to get too close here at some point but there's no like there's nothing in the world that is absolutely scarce, right? Because like, for instance, if you have oil, people say oil is running out, but if you come up with a technology that reduces the oil intake in, in every engine in the world by hundred percent, then you have doubled, you have doubled the oil reserves in the world. Right. Right. right? You can go also in, in the ocean more, or you can like mine on asteroids and so forth. There's nothing really scarce besides human ingenuity and Bitcoin. And people have tried to expand the 20, there's only 21 million Bitcoin. And you can have them in subunits, but you can never have more than that. They have tried it. They have tried to attack it. You can copy Bitcoin and start a new Bitcoin tomorrow, right. but you will never have the same network um, and the same kind of like people that already have invested their money in it and the same kind of reputation. Therefore, people go to the best. 
and there will never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. And it's absolute scarcity. There's no absolute scarcity with Dogecoin. There's no absolute scarcity with Ethereum or with right. ADA or any of the other ones. At least they're not convincingly scarce, whereby Bitcoin has been going through so many trials and tribulations. It is very much believable. Yeah. And even the ones that do have scarcity for now, like you said, they can be changed to not be scarce. Whereas Bitcoin is almost like this ghost ship that was set adrift and it's just going on its own. And, and it's you can't change it at this point. You can't change or at least you can't change the level of scarcity. There's no way to do that. It's, it's yeah. very, very compelling. And, uh, you know, I wish we could talk for six hours about all this, but you've been <laughs> this has been a really incredible conversation. And I, I do want to before I let you go and, and thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, before I let you go i want to give you a chance uh to give your final thoughts you know anything you want to talk about any upcoming uh events coming up with stu- sfl any kind of uh you would mention you had a book a- anything you want to talk about anything you felt like we didn't get to ad- uh, address you have as much time as you want dr wolf von Lair, the lar i the one time i say it wrong i say it the last time dr wolf That's von right. Lahr, you, had, you, had a, you had a very the- good run i had a good run right yeah. uh, dr wolf von Lahr, the floor is yours Spike, thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute pleasure. Um, uh, keep keep doing what you're doing. It's it's crucial. Um, and uh, yeah, just people check out studentsoliberty.org. If you're a student, please apply to our programs. We'd love to have you. Uh, it's a life-changing experience. I can tell you that from personal experience. But besides that, if you like conversations like this, also like different viewpoints, um, then please check out freerfuturefest.org or .com, freerfuturefest.com. It's in Nashville. It's um, October 9th. It will be in a baseball stadium, so it's not like sticky hotel rooms. It will be interesting. There will be music. There will be art. There will be liberty. Um, there will be like a debate between like a socialist Twitch streamer and like a libertarian Twitch streamer. So it's going to be interesting from all kinds of different angles. We will have cool conversations, um, including similar to ones that we had right now. And I think we will have a blast. There will be also like a picnic the next day potentially and like um, good community building. So freefuturefest.com. Um, we were expecting like around 500 people from all across the United States and the world. So please come to that. Otherwise, check out studentsoliberty.org. And if you like uh, YouTube, then of course, subscribe to everything that you see right here, literally Spike Cohen, but also subscribe to um, Learn Liberty. Just type in Learn Liberty. It's a channel that we have over 46 million views. And uh, we're releasing a video a week about all kinds of different topics uh, from COVID to monetary policy to Bitcoin to 3D printed guns. So you should subscribe to that as well. And uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Wolf von La. And um, yeah, thank you so much for listening to this and uh, continue to follow and and uh, give all of your Patreon donations um, also to um, our good friend Spike Cohen here. And you can also donate to Students for Liberty at sfldonate.org if you feel so inclined. Um, we are There's German efficiency. We are spending the money very well and uh, we are trying to put it all in the hands of the students. So um, thanks so much for listening. Absolutely. Thank you, man. And uh, yeah, studentsforliberty.org, uh, freerfuturefest.com. That's October 9th in Nashville. Um, and uh, yeah, follow uh, Dr. Von Lahr, uh, Wolf Von Lahr uh, on Twitter. And uh, Wolf, thanks again for coming on. Uh, stick around. I'm going to talk with you during the outro. Uh, folks, thank you again so much for tuning into this episode of My Fellow Americans. I told you it was going to be a good one. And as always, I, I didn't lie. Uh, join us tomorrow, uh, Thursday night at 8 p.m. for my co-host Matt's show, uh, The Writer's Block. His guest tomorrow I know this, and I don't have to look at the notes. It's his guest tomorrow 
is Christine Kusler Womack, who is uh, one of the top libertarians in Pennsylvania. She's with the Libertarian Party of Pennsylvania. I knew I'd, I told you I'd know. Uh, and then join us uh, for Friday for the uh, Cajun and Eskimo from Bio to Igloos with, uh, with Nullick and Noel. Then join us back here on Monday night for uh, Mr. America, the Beard of Truth with Jason Lyon. Uh, and then uh, next Tuesday, join us uh, for uh, eight for the Muddy Waters of Freedom, where Matt Wright and I part through the week's events like the chipper little schoolboys that we are and then join me right back here next wednesday same spike place same spike time for another amazing episode of my fellow americans thank you again for tuning in oh and don't forget now you can subscribe to muddied waters media before you could donate money every month and you got nothing actually we didn't give you anything we just you we said thank you and we said we loved you we actually we weren't even good at t- saying we love now you get stuff so uh anchor.fm slash muddied muddied waters slash subscribe and you can subscribe for ten dollars a month uh you know that you're helping grow the muddy waters community but you also get exclusive uh uh anchor audio uh content uh ad free content uh via that uh your uh, the all of the uh podcasts from anchor will be ad free and uh, once a month, we will be re- resurrecting the Muddied Zoom, where you can hang out with all of the Muddy Waters Media crew uh, on a Zoom call once a month, and we'll go live so everyone can watch you hang out with us and be jealous, and you can talk them into joining too. Uh, but thank you again, uh, Muddy uh, Anchor.fm slash Muddy Waters slash subscribe. Thank you again for tuning in. I will see you next week. I'm Spike Cohen, and you are the power. God bless, guys.